This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All right, Eric, we are back with what is traditionally our quarterly recap. But this time around, we have special announcements to make. And I'm going to let you make the special announcement. There is a rebrand happening, what I would consider the removal of the laser eyes from our profile picture, if that's the right parallel here. But maybe just talk through what's going on with the show formerly known as Web3 Breakdowns and what's going to happen from here. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So Web3 Breakdowns is rebranding as Making Markets and broadening the scope of the areas we're going to talk and speak about over the coming months and hopefully years. We never had laser eyes, but it's not a bad analogy. I've always felt myself as an accidental podcast host. I was naive and I had made a comment, you know, there's too many podcasts and I didn't think I'd be a decent host. I still don't think I am. But when Patrick invited me on to do that Board Ape Yacht Club episode, suddenly this episode did really well and he asked me if I wanted to do it. And because it was Patrick, because the Colossus brand is kind of an opportunity you can't say no to, to start not just from scratch, but with such a big thing behind you. It turned into be way more fun than I ever could have imagined. You get to talk to all sorts of interesting people. It's a tremendous amount of work. There's planning and scheduling and get all behind that. But it was never my intent. But I really had this crypto deep focus. And to me, I think people who know me, and this has come throughout the show, even when people have said you're a bond investor, I've been known as a fixed income PM, or there are points where I was a muni guy or a corporate guy. And I told people that when people enter the markets, some people enter just because they want to make a lot of money. Some people enter because they were passionate about the asset class. I just never really cared. I always had the bug of wanting to trade things and find edges and ways to exploit systems. And there's two major parts of it that have always been interesting to me. And this is what attracted me to crypto. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what I want to do for the next year? I want to trade digital images. It was just that this is a huge opportunity. This looks like a market. It definitely looks like it's in a boom cycle. And if you can figure out information, you probably have an edge and make money. And the truth was, it went really well for me and my friends that participated in that way. But it was never the philosophical world of take down the government or censorship-resistant money. That stuff's all fascinating to me. I'm a big believer in crypto and what it can do. But it was more just an intense curiosity of what's going on. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're trading stocks, bonds, crypto, chickens, rare art, digital NFTs, I think all of them are super interesting. And the part that came back to me over and over again as we went this deep dive through crypto was how similar it is, how similar people are thinking about risk management, how think people are thinking about settlement and rails, how people think about finding an edge, exploiting an edge, where there was opportunity. And that leads to the second part, that there's both the trader, investor, founder angle of, is there an opportunity here to make money? And I'm just always addicted to that side. And then the second point is, the guts, how things work, the rails. And that was the second part of crypto, especially, and we've talked about this, I think, on the last episode of 
the fixed income crypto diaspora? Like, why does this happen? And it's because there's lots of parts about the modern financial services system that's messy and gross. And if you want to build a really successful business, you have to understand all these archaic things like how DTC works or what a fixed connection means and how to settle and what post-trade compliance means and all this gross stuff that doesn't make the headlines. It's not as sexy as Todd Combs talking about his deep dive into Fannie Mae. And I love that episode. Those are the two parts that attracted to me. And so the idea of making markets was to really broaden the aperture and talk to everyone. The story I'll give about an upcoming guest, we haven't recorded it yet, but really pushed me over the edge was I was at one of these kid events and it was just all the dads chatting. And one of the fathers was like, got into the, what do you do thing? And usually that's like, I don't want to do this, but he's like, I'm an art dealer. And I was like, that's really interesting. And then he's like, it's only an art dealer. He's trading like rare photography from France. And I'm like, what? We started talking about liquidity and risk and settlement. And how do you know what pieces to sit on because it's really liquid. And what I find is I get most excited when friends trading tickets or to sporting events or rare art or aluminum, anyone who's creating a market and thinking about it. And the more inefficient and weird it is, the more fascinating I find it. That was where it was the discussion with Patrick and you and the team of, can we make this bigger? I still love crypto. We have a bunch of great episodes about people coming on in crypto, but I wanted to talk about stuff more than just crypto. You mentioned the connection with fixed income and crypto markets, and a lot of that has to do with the rails and archaic terminology. Do you think there's anything there in terms of fixed income investors or credit investors being more obsessed with markets overall? Is there anything there that would make that the case? Because I do agree there's something to the idea of all of these other asset classes, many of them esoteric and not having the very well-structured and highly liquid equity markets that I think dominate the press. I definitely think there is. I'll connect two points. One is everyone should go listen to The Art of Investing, but the Todd Combs interview really highlights why a short seller in the equity market, in my opinion, is the best investor in the world because they're taking a bet that's very risky. And short selling and fixed income to me are very similar. Howard Marks from Oaktree has a great memo, and he talks about how their investment philosophy is risk management isn't the most important thing, it's the only thing. And the reason is, is that they wanted to say, we want to protect from losses, and let the winners, because when you're in fixed income, especially if you're just doing traditional fixed income, you have upsides limited, but downside is significant. It's not as dangerous maybe as short selling, but it has a very similar premise. And he was going back when they were writing the security analysis book with Seth Klarman, the new version of the 1940, he went back and he saw this quote by Benjamin Graham that fixed income is a negative art, which he thought was kind of a condescending thing. But he, when he researched it further, it was the avoidance of loss. So when you say you're in fixed income, people would sometimes say, well, you could never do equity because you don't have risk taking. And I always found that so perverse because really what you're doing when you come at it through that fixed income lens or short selling or just risk management first is you're thinking about how much can I lose? Yes, I want to make returns. Yes, I want upside. But you're always focused on downside. And what that means is you can never be wiped out of the game. And so the fixed income mindset, or at least the one that I was trained with and the one that I have is protecting the downside. So when you see an opportunity like crypto, for example, you're like, this seems very interesting. This seems like it has a market. You're very excited to participate. But the whole time you're also like, where do I sell? When do I get out? Whereas if you just come from this equity optimistic side, and I'm not trying to throw too much shade, but there's always the equity fixed income little brother thing. 
People didn't even know what balance sheets were before 2008. Suddenly people are asking what stuff was. And what ends up happening is you don't understand the hardcore fundamentals. And so all you can think about is, well, what if this is a 50X? And if it was 100X? And how do I tether value? There is no value. So I think that that lends to the mindset. And then that's how you think about the asset class. When you think about the rail start specifically, that's not everyone. That's almost second level of fixed income. How much did you want to take apart the car? When I was a kid, I took apart a bike. I didn't know how to put it back together. I didn't have engineering, so I just wanted to see how it worked. I remember having all these ball bearings everywhere and being fascinated by it. Do you understand how the system works? And people don't really want you to do that. They want you to think about the modern systems where everyone's so subspecialized. But there are people, whether they're in the ops or the technology or some psycho PMs like me that just have to know how it works, that they really tear apart the entire system. And when you tear apart the entire system, you're like, oh my God, this is awful. And when you see crypto, you see stuff like standardization that makes stuff go so much faster. The easy thing to say that I can feel confident is it's obvious we will get there. The hard part is I have no idea how, but this gets also back to the point of it was never a two universe problem. It was always there's one universe and a new technology gets created and it will impact our lives. When the internet came out, people had all these crazy ideas. We saw all these things. A lot of the companies that were in the tech bubble ended up coming to existence 30 years later. Oh, we're going to buy pet food? Yeah. Everyone buys pet food now. It's the joke of the internet era that whatever it was, pets.com, and now whatever you have Chewy or something, it works. So I think we will get there. I think we'll get the rails. And I think the fixed income people will be the biggest pushers of it, which will lead to the most adoption because the equity system doesn't really need it. It already has centralization. If anything, the equity problem is they're fighting over who has control and access, like the high-frequency trading desks that own the exchange relationship. Fixed income is a large global market that's very fragmented and a mess. If the U.S. Treasury bond or an asset class goes on those rails, it's going to change how we do finance forever. If you had to pick between a business analyst or research analyst that was great with analysis of companies. So he could look at a company and tell you everything about the financials and whatnot versus a business analyst who was incredibly well-versed in the market plumbing and was able to take that analysis and apply it to different asset classes. What do you think is more valuable in the markets today? I think it probably depends on the market. Are you trading public markets or are you in private? How well-known is the information? This gets to the two prongs of it. If you think about something like investment-grade munis, they're extremely heterogeneous. You can have a staff of research analysts. Agencies have proprietary information. Are you really going to have an edge rating a muni bond over someone else? The default rate's less than 20 basis points for a triple B bond. Something ridiculous. Now, people will tout huge research teams. We do this, we do this. But I was an analyst. I can say this because I asked the question, are we adding any value? One question I had is, are we taking away value because we're finding boogeymen that don't exist. Depends on that. And so let me just flip it on its head, not call it a business analyst. You say, hey, Eric, we're going to trade YouTube royalties, right? What do you know about YouTube royalty streams? I don't know much. How many people can we call? We know they got a call. But you just learn that business analysis of this is a market that has some sort of interesting cash flow that other people can't wrap their heads around. And I think I can create a repeatable process, business analysts all day. If the market's risk is more heterogeneous, such that that's not where the edge is, is like understanding it, the plumbing matters. Now, what becomes fascinating is you have spaces like trading cards or something, right? Where you both have to have the business analysis, what's going on, but then there's a plumbing problem too. How do you connect buyers and sellers? There's an edge just by having access to the plumbing. And so you're inevitably going to need to know both. And then the fascinating thing is what you see with these niches, someone finds an edge, 
that they just exploit for the hell of it. They go buy a YouTube stream. Then they start to build an infrastructure. And then someone's like, well, these margins are really attractive. And someone says, well, when is other people going to enter the market? Well, if the friction stays high, then the moat stays high. Citadel isn't going to trade royalty streams. But then on the other side, look at Airbnb. Airbnb decreased the friction. Now everyone's a real estate agent. Real estate rentals, everyone's like, oh, this is such a great business. Not when any idiot can do it with a laptop. The value of Airbnb did, right? They took the gnarly infrastructure, which I find fascinating, and said, I don't care about how you guys want to bet. I'm just going to create the casino with which to play. Once you own that, then you're the rent seeker and the game gets played around you. What edge do you have in renting the 9 millionth house in Boca Raton? The point on industry structure there and plumbing, whatever we want to call it, is incredibly important. Before we move on further, when you look back at your time covering the crypto space over a several year period where there was quite a bit of volatility, quite a bit of headlines, just from personal experience, what was that like? Ignoring the fact that it was very, very, very polarizing. The part I enjoyed the most, which will always be my instinct, is that not to be afraid to go learn something that other people have a negative view of. Anything that turns me on, that's not interesting or that's beneath you or condescending for the wrong reasons. So that's always going to be a trigger. Now, interestingly, the rise and fall of crypto was fascinating. It was very fun for me to be outside my element where I was in a sector that was important. Being the bond guy for 15 years, no one really cares about you. They cared about private equity. They cared about venture capital. They didn't care that you could tear apart a balance sheet, that you understood how CDOs work or the housing crisis. Like That was cool for a little bit, but all people wanted to know is, was their money safe or not? Now being a bond guy is cool. But for most of my career, it wasn't. So to be with the cool kids was weird, but interesting position. What I learned was that that attention and that money, unsurprisingly, gets lots of scammers and lots of hucksters and lots of fakes. Similar to other up markets, I've seen this. I saw this with equity runs before where you talk to the analyst, you're like, I'm not that smart or that person. One of us isn't right on this. I know they're getting paid a lot of money. I know they're a PM. I know they're funded well, but one of us is wrong. It's probably me. That's my default assumption. But then they lose. I kind of had that feeling. So in the up market, you see this idea of Buffett's quote of, you can see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. When the tide's rising, it's really hard to separate. I think that what crypto has is an unbelievable sense of innovation and desire to push edges that to me was very rejuvenating because pre-crypto deep dive, you can't win. Facebook and Google and Amazon are on the world. They built a regulatory moat unlike anything I've ever seen. Finance, biotech are controlled by the government in a lot of ways. And tech has this lane that they get to live in. And how can you compete with monopolies that are pretending they're not monopolies? So I was really depressed that the idea of a tech startup is just to sell to them and be done. So who's going to take them on? And then on the banking side, you're like, well, you can't take them on because the government protects them. So every bank, if it sniffles, Bank of America lost $130 billion. You don't have to worry because we have a term now, significantly important bank, meaning it can't get in trouble. It's such a weird place. And so crypto gave me this spark of, oh my God, these guys are so nuts, which I love and so wild and audacious to try to do this thing. And so there's a lot of amazing people that truly believe that they're going to have not just a small impact, but a worldwide impact on how money and finance work. And I think a lot of them will, of the ones I've gotten to meet. But you also have to carve through a lot of bullshit nonsense that when funding rates are really low, anyone can try this. And this is Malbos's point, right? You have these big cycles 
And what's really cool is you fund some really interesting stuff, but you also get fund a bunch of garbage. But that's the benefit of the capitalistic cycle. And then we have a huge drought for 10 years. And then eventually those companies that got that funding eventually find product market fit. And the ones that survive were better for it. So looking back on it, it's super fun to be on the upside. It was odd to be in the sexy space for a while of people asking you questions. It was fun to be able to articulate and represent like what makes sense, ask questions, having gotten the chance to meet with providers and ask questions like, hey, I've never heard of, and this is 100% true, hedge fund and a custody and a brokerage company, they're not even allowed to speak to each other in Wall Street. Why is it that this is okay? And not just FTX, but lots of things. You're like, why are you structured like this? And it's like, well, it's crypto. And there are some truths of the old system has arrived at some of the decisions based on prior crises and prior losses. And those are good lessons. And I think we've talked about this in the past. If you just throw everything out with absolute disdain, you're missing a lot of the picture. And the people I'm most interested in that I found like the most enjoyment with are people that had that crossover of, I understand how the world works. I understand how I want to change it. And this is the path I think to get there. That's always been an interesting thing and probably the people I learned the most from. When I hear you recount your experience as a bond investor, it kind of sounds like you were dating the safe person, the conservative person. They broke up with you and then you just went crazy in the opposite direction and went out with the rock star, lived the wildlife. It's all coming together and making a bit more sense now. The part that was interesting to me is I didn't totally understand. For me, it didn't seem as radical as it did to other people. People would say, you're going from bonds to crypto and risk assets. But again, this gets back to the moral of the show or the thing that I want it to be is it's just never mattered to me. Here's an asset class that very few people truly understand, even though people want to talk about it all day. There's a deluge of data that's not being wrangled. The big guys aren't invested in. It passed all my criteria. Massive data problem, informational edge all around. And if you dove deep, you could find stuff. Is the asset class more volatile? Sure. So that just changes your risk tolerance of what you're doing. How many people have talked to a tax-exempt hospital? There's 5,000 hospitals. Probably 75% of those are tax-exempt. I've probably talked to more of those tax-exempt hospitals than most people on the planet. There's like five other people that do that. The market's extremely esoteric. And when hospital A buys hospital B, you can make 20 to 30%. If hospital B goes bankrupt, you can lose a good amount of money. It's just a volatility difference. But you're trying to wrangle data. There's 100,000 different healthcare QCIPs, which means there's probably 70,000 indentures and offering statements, probably 300 pages, 2.1 million pages of documentation and covenants. If you're a corporate bond investor, you pull up Bloomberg and you say, what's the covenant? Ask someone what the hospital debt ratio is and be like, which year they issue? There's seven of them. If this thing files for bankruptcy, it's possible that one of these tranches just keeps paying because it was written differently. A gnarly mess. And with crypto is what's this token? Where is this trading? There's these exchanges. How do you do it? This one you can, this one you can't. And it's just a playground. So it was just extremely exciting. And so to me, it was a much more natural thing. I think people thought about the volatility, but I really just thought about the asymmetry of information, the massive amount of data, and then the nascency of the system. This is what's interesting now going back and forth between the two is that the rails and fixed income are more established, but the trading settlement's a disaster. Crypto has a much better trading system. Direct settlement, on-chain, everyone's looking at the same database. Did that money move there? So their trading and execution is stuff that the street has dreamed about for 20 years and spent a billion dollars trying to get. They're never going to get there. However, their accounting, back office, brokerage, who owns the money, where is it, audit trail, that stuff's still being built. And so 
there's parts of each world that definitely make a lot of sense. And I know I sound like such a weirdo, but they're so similar in so many ways. Just I understand the volatility being the big difference. I think it's funny because when you would say it to a typical person, even a typical person in the markets, they would think fixed income, again, is this safe asset class and crypto is tattoos and nose rings. But it is a very common path. It is something that you consistently see people moving from very high quality fixed income shops still into the crypto space today. I wanted to ask if you were to consider where you stood two years ago when you first started the podcast versus today in terms of how crypto will have an impact on the markets. Do you have more confidence in the impact that crypto will have or less confidence when you compare it to where you were two years ago? I think I have more confidence on the global scale it will have and more concern about how the regulatory structure will shape it or maybe the time it will take to market. I think that was the biggest thing. I've been really lucky to get to interview someone at the top legal minds and regulators in the space and just understand that industries just don't get created that often. The first draw was, when have we seen an asset class get created? And typically, it's a sub-asset class, it's financial engineering, at least in the debt markets, it's securitization, right? So we're like some sort of derivative structure that's temporary, and you make a lot of money up front understanding how it works, and then you know it's probably going to be the source of problems in the future when people who don't understand it use it. This was very different where like you had spot markets, the ability to create an asset class in a unique way, and it came head into regulation. And it makes sense. If stable coins could pay interest, you're talking about going after what's probably now just under a $6 trillion money market business. Don't even get into bank deposits being, you know, whatever, they're 18 trillion. This is such a huge pie. And if people could just walk around and abstract, everyone loves Venmo and PayPal and they can say, well, Eric, I have that. I'm like, you do, but you have no idea. And this is what finance is great at. What finance does is it's able to remove you from your money via fees that you don't see. And so people don't understand how the float works in Venmo and PayPal, that your money is sitting there and that they're giving you credit and they're actually running an interlending program and they're making money off of that. And that you don't have to pay that, but that's how they pay themselves, right? So a stable coin, that's probably my most exciting thing. Uh, They'll have a massive impact on the whole world and how it gets to. And then I'm super curious if we get to real world assets. If you do get to real world assets, this notion of tokenizing instruments, it just creates a huge regulatory mess, to be honest. It creates these non-bank entities that can do stuff. I'm sure there will be huge problems with that that we'll find and have to address. But if allowed to exist, which I think is still my biggest question, you're going to go after whatever is finance, like 7% of GDP, some huge number. The oligopoly that is modern finance gets turned up on its head in ways that I'm just not totally sure their impact, but I think it will be massive. And so I still think that there's a lot of tremendous opportunity and acceptance and adoption. And that during the time of covering just pure crypto, that's all I've seen is the conversation go from Eric's playing with weird things. And that's interesting to the number one question I get at every dinner party or whatever is what percentage of my portfolio should I have? What's your answer? I think it all depends on wealth levels. The first question I ask, do you have hedge funds? Do you have venture capital? Do you have private equity? Have you taken any of the long duration risks at all? I think that it's hard for me to think that somebody wouldn't have up to a percent, maybe 2%. I've had obviously way more at different points when I was trading it more actively. But it's hard for me to think that you wouldn't, especially with something like, and I think this probably lends to the fixed income side, where people do think about macro 
things more often. They do think about real and nominal rates. They think about the path of inflation. They think about government spending. They think about deficits. And just in either world events, I think there's this thought of, would you just want to have some as an insurance policy in this world? And it's not claiming the doom and gloom. And then on the Ethereum side, you start to think of like, well, this is just a better thing to build on. And if more people adopt it, this is a huge opportunity, more of an equity upside bet. But to me, it just becomes every year a little bit closer to that. I think that if you get the spot ETF, that will make the conversation much easier for people because we had one of our good interviews that's coming out was with a large financial firm that's working on this. And their whole point was that if you wanted to own crypto, you could have bought it. That's not the issue. When gold was created as an ETF, to me, that was fascinating. I think there's way too many ETFs in the world. Today, I guess it's the biggest ETF issuance day. I don't totally get it. And I don't understand how it's not commoditized. There's probably an answer to that in terms of why so many people are creating them as financial beneficiaries of the creation, right? There's just so many, but the gold ETF was so obvious to me. I don't want to own gold bars in my house. It's hard to transact. You actually were taking something that is illiquid and you were offering it in a much more liquid form. And typical financial products are just risk transformations. And I always worry about that. If you take something illiquid, call it liquid. Is it really? But this one made a lot of sense. Bitcoin's already really liquid, but for someone who's workflow process, I think this is more the financial services space, is focused on ETFs, doesn't want to worry about things, buying a ticker is a little bit easier. GBTC got to 20 billion based on that premise. It's no different. It's just someone else did it for you. I think that more and more people will just adapt to it being the third asset class in a way that makes sense as a commodities basket. It's probably going to then eventually end up in an index somewhere. And once it ends up in an index, then it just has its place of this is a thing. And we're no longer debating fiat and central bank controlled currency versus encoded currency. You talk a little bit about who you're going to have conversations with now and just taking a broader approach to markets. Can you share a little bit more about that just in terms of what you've been interested in? You shared a little bit about the story with the art dealer, but there's so many different directions that this can go. So who are you planning to talk to now? Who would you like to be speaking with? Always going to be a public market fanatic because it's the biggest game to play. And I think the people I'm most interested in view the world through that lens that these are just games we're playing and there's different games you can play. And I think it's just so fascinating to get the chance to sprinkle in stuff, someone who's running a large auto dealer and just balancing inventory, understanding dynamics of where is my cost basis? What's the time to settle? How can I trade these things to running a high yield desk? I'm super excited about it, but I definitely feel like I'm setting up for a challenge because the people I most want to talk to and the people that I'm lucky to talk to do not want to talk to you about this. If you're making ridiculous margins trading some weird part of the world, what benefit do you have to come on a podcast and share it with anyone? So I don't know if this is going to work, to be honest. The people I'm probably most excited to talk to, I get nervous. I may not do it on air. And so this is something I've been learning too, is asking those people who would. So maybe if you're the number one trader of watches, you probably don't want to be public with it, but you probably know two through five and maybe the one will do it. But that's just a super interesting market. Watches trade like an asset class. Wine trades like an asset car. Cars trades like an asset class. Art trades like this. There's a lot of luxury items I'm interested in. Private credit, distressed debt, equity, private equity in the sense of venture capital back stuff. I think that anyone who's making a market is super interesting. So that excites me. So if you want to talk about that, and I hope we get the same amount of feedback we got from our listeners for Web3. And then 
The other side is that second pillar, which is the infrastructure, how stuff works, how a bond trades, how a car gets shipped from here to there, how a market actually gets made on the platform side, whether those are exchanges, prime brokerage. There's all these parts of the system that I just find super interesting. And I think they're too hard to be an expert in because there's so many. I was talking to someone who's a prime broker. He started using these words. I'm not, I mean, you might know this from Raven, but capital introductory meeting, prime brokerage deal, credit deal, all of these things that if you set up a hedge fund, these steps are all natural and they have hedge funds in a box, but I just think they're super interesting. And I also think that on the infrastructure side, right now is a good example where I would say one of the market sentiments from the smartest investors and traders I talk to is that we're at a breaking point. Something is going to break, but we don't know where it is. You're going to find that out by backtracking through the plumbing. If you listen to the Todd Combs episode, not to be a spoiler on it, but the thing that was specific to me, where the interest was, is learning how a structured product gets securitized. You did your stress debt. How does a workout work, right? So people are watching the FTX case. This is a crossover. You got Crypto Twitter opining on if Sam's going to get Adderall and pictures of Caroline, not understanding that, well, there's some interesting stuff going on. FTX claims are trading right now. So did Lehman trades. So did Enron trades. I know a ton of people who made a ton of money buying these things. Why? Well, FTX has an investment in one of the Jenner's brands. They also have the Anthropic, the AI company. Apparently, Caroline made a $10 million investment. There's assets in a balance sheet, right? So I don't care about Sam Bankman Freed. I don't care about Michael Lewis. I find that noisy and irrelevant and obnoxious. What I care about is that there's a bunch of people trading claims right now that are probably going to make a fortune. They see the edge and they can do the analysis, but then they also understand how the system works. How do you find the claims, right? Mt. Gox was a great example of this. I met an investor who bought Mt. Gox claims and they're getting delivered Bitcoin. So in traditional distressed debt, when you have a payable, if you buy a hospital, you're owed payables. So the hospital had $10 million of people who didn't pay them right before they filed. You buy it for $2 million, you go knock on all those doors, you annoy them, and hopefully you get $3 million or $4 million and you make your money. If you had bought a Mt. Gox claim, you're delivered Bitcoin at $700 cost basis. It was a really good investment. So stuff like that is the people I'd love to talk to. The hardest part with this audacious idea is how do we get them talking, but those are the two angles I'm most excited about. Brings up memories. There were a lot of people, like you mentioned, that made a ton on Lehman claims. And I think that made some people's careers, let alone Enron claims. I'm sure it's a very similar story. So maybe some people willing to talk about the past more than the present. You could draw the lines between the two. I have some sense from that. But when you think about who the target listener would be or who would be most interested in listening to the show, who fits the category when you think about the person. This is where I think of the overlap of if you went into crypto, that probably came from a deep curiosity. And if you're listening to our show, which was already at the crossing point of modern finance and this new crypto world, it usually is there because there's an edge. The thing about interviews I like is always the examples of an edge. It's the one question I'd want to ask people along the lines of investing. What would the audience want to hear? You probably can't tell me an edge today. So this is a good example that you were pointing out of maybe it's something from the past. I'm not asking you to share with everyone publicly how you're making money today, but give me one that you'd had in the past. And when you ask someone that, they usually light up because if it's an edge, it doesn't exist forever. And now they can finally share the win that they had, which is amazing. I spent most of my career scouring the country trying to find which hospital is going to buy another hospital. 
There's lots of ways to do that. And when you find a creative way, when you find out that if you sit in a publicly available meeting that they just tell you, but nobody sits in the meetings and you download or you do a FOIA request and you understand, oh, this is a public record. So they have to post it in some supermarket and you get a piece of information or you find that little gem and you're like, oh my God, this works. And you're like, I don't want to tell anybody. And then it works, but then it goes away and everyone figures it out and the game's over. I love that stuff. And I think that the type of audience is always thinking about those things, knowing you can learn stuff. I was thinking about this on the way in. I'd love to be able to interview some of the guests that Colossus has had and merge that with some of the type of questioning on my first millions of how direct it is with the authenticity of having been in the space. If I could do that, then I think the audience will be happy. One of the piece of advice I got was, what do I want to do? Like, these are the people I want to talk to. And I hope other people want to listen to it. But I know that that's what I'm most interested and most excited about is when you're at that dinner party and someone tells you they do something. I think the thing that most excites me besides this area is a passion. You're passionate about it. And usually when you're passionate about it, you know one of those two sides of the story. You either know that there's an edge and so you love going after it and you want to share that. That's obviously much more markets-based. But on the plumbing side, if you're passionate about it, I did meet a guy who did waste management in New Jersey. And it was so interesting. Not just the history of the characters that were in it, auto dealerships and the legal regulation that got set up. Why is it that all these celebrities buy auto dealerships? And why is it that you can't find two Mercedes dealerships within X amount of space of each other? It's not just random that that happened. It was legal and regulatory capture that led to a system that I didn't realize makes it a great business. And so when people start talking about that and they're super geeked out about how their market works, I can't stop listening to it. And so those are the type of conversations I'd like to have. No, I think that excitement certainly came across the microphone there. And I completely agree with what you're saying. I think there's something to it where when someone sits down and describes a little bit about what they do and the willingness to just really go into the details of, no, how does this work? What you mentioned right there in terms of the Mercedes dealerships, we had somebody on talked about franchises and just the different dynamics that go into that market and how they're so different and unique. I think there's a lot of curious minds out there in the finance category that I will be honest, I think there's something to just being interested in how money gets made. And yes, that factors into the business analysis too, but feels like definitely the case here. I think the fun part is how the consistent themes, if there was one thing I want to try to extract from this, or the part that I like is how everybody thinks about risk. Everyone thinks about liquidity. Everyone thinks about return. I think about it when they're doing this well, they think about it different ways. And I think that's just a general theme I found is it's just a lens that I see the world through that every time I hear these conversations, it's very similar. It all seems so different. They have their own languages. I don't know what it's like to negotiate sponsorship deals or how sponsorship works. I didn't know about media buyers versus the actual content part of the side of how marketing dollars get spent. And there's a whole market. There's a market for athletes. If you look through the FDX things just on my mind, but the sponsorship deals, how that got negotiated, how all that worked, publishing, and there's markets everywhere. And anyone who's willing to talk about them, I think it's just such an interesting area because you might have nothing to do with book publishing. You're not going to write a book. You might buy books. You don't care. But when you find out about the world, remember the Nick Coca-Cola's breakdown of book publishing? First of all, it's the best business analysis ever. And it's so, this is how the system works. And if you went to go publish the Colossus book, you would have learned the same piece of knowledge and information. But that one area was just such a cool take. And I think about that 
with everything. I'm buying a data contract, negotiating with a technology company. There's all these different markets everywhere. And I think that when you have someone who's an expert or understands how it works, you really get these bank shots of understanding how other things might connect or why books are 300 pages, why they're published in this chapter form. Why do we have to read like this? What's a popular podcast or the market for YouTube videos and why the content hits a certain way? All that stuff to me is just fascinating. And when you look through the lens of markets, the reason why it's markets-based is I'm so much more interested in the people that put capital at risk. I don't care how much it is or how little it is, but if there's capital at risk, it's so much different than speculation. We were just talking about someone who gets a lot of airtime talking about the end of banks. If you shorted banks, you would have been gone a long time ago. But it's much easier to go on the media and talk about it. But if you bet against it, or if you bet for it, or you want to bet on YouTube, or you want to bet on podcasting, I'm so much more intrigued than someone who thinks it's going to be a big world. And I think that got back to the crypto thing was people were placing bets. They were putting capital at risk. They weren't just saying, I think that AI is going to change the world. Sure, it is. Show me your bets. Show me your portfolio. Show me what you're actually betting on. And this is the part of, you can't get it, but that's what I want. That's what I want to know is talk to the people that have capital at risk in some fashion, because they're the ones that there's just so much bullshit. If it goes wrong, they're going to eat it. If you're betting on auto dealers and it doesn't work, it's going to be very apparently obvious it's not working. Channeling your inner Taleb there, skin in the game. It is exciting days ahead, and I'm excited to listen to all the things that are coming soon. Some of them have already been recorded, but there's a lot more that's going to happen as well. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 